Amen. Hope God is your vision. Uh, I want to share a few stories with you today. First one is about being rescued. You ever been rescued? Yeah, a few of you are like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been rescued. Uh, I, I remember a few summers ago, uh, we were out in our boat, and we are out in Lac Possum Blah, and we were like way out there, like miles and miles from the boat launch, but we had left our campground, and so we had no, kind of, no gear with us, no blankets, no sleeping bags, no food, nothing, and uh, we were having trouble with the, the fuel on the boat. And uh, so one of the boys is at the back pumping the little squeeze bottle to get the fuel to go into the engine. And he's pumping away, pumping away. But what I don't realize is that we've bypassed the oil injection system for two-stroke engine. Well, if any of you know anything about engines, you can't do that for very long. And the engine seizes. And that's what happened to us. The engine seized. And we're out there in the middle of the lake. And so, you know, being the resourceful guy I am, I go, okay, boys, everybody grab a water ski and use it like a paddle. (laughs) So we're out there with these water skis paddling uh, with the water ski trying to get somewhere. Well, after about two hours, I realized that we'd only gone about 100 meters. We were not going to make it. I mean, we we had uh, thousands of meters to go, like many, many kilometers. And this would take us probably about three days of paddling <laughs> to get there. We were going to be out of food. Out of, and, and dusk was falling. It was getting dark. And I'm like, oh, boy, we're in trouble. So uh, I remember I, I went, oh, yeah, the boat. When I bought it, it came with this little package of, of uh, little um, distress signal rockets, right? Little starburst rockets that so so I go under the back seat and pull this thing out and I shoot one off and it goes way up there (laughs) nothing happens well it must be a dud so I shoot another one off same thing shoot my last one off nothing happened just it just flew up in the air about 100 yards and then just came right back down did nothing and I'm like well that wasn't helpful Uh, so then I had to resort to the international uh, distress signal. Does, does anybody know what the international distress signal is? That's exactly right. Help! You cup your hands together like this and you just yell, help! And so that's what I did. I just yelled, help. And within a few minutes, somebody heard me yelling <laughs> and came with a boat and uh, hooked our boat onto it and dragged us back to the boat launch. Took him about an hour because we couldn't get up on the plane and it was slow going and I felt really bad for this guy he used he was using up all of his gas to help us and anyways I gave him some money but anyways you know it's not the point the point is he couldn't really go out and buy some more gas you know he, he, he was on a lake there was no gas stations on it so it was pretty nice getting when he came to rescue us there was an enormous amount of relief I felt. Somebody cared about me and my plight, and someone was going to help us, and it was so awesome. But you know, as great as it is to be rescued, it's also really fun, or fun, it's really rewarding, I should say, to be part of a rescue of someone else. I had one opportunity in my life to rescue someone that was dying, 
And uh, it was basically I was in my dorm room and I heard this loud screeching and then a horrendous crashing, smashing noise. Uh, and I, I went running out of my dorm room to see what in the world it was. And we raced down to the end of the campus where I was attending school. And this is what we found in the field. This uh, really sweet car it was a Shelby Cobra, 65 replica. Uh, of a Shelby Cobra with a huge V8 engine in it. It had flipped end for end three times, they tell me, and landed upside down with the engine revving. And uh, one of the guys had been thrown out of the car, but the other guy was still seat belted into the car. And you see where the door is open there? It was closed, and he was underneath that door, half his body out of the car, and his, his seat belt was still attached inside the car. And uh, so we couldn't get him out. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there was people running from all over the place. And so there was about five guys, five or, there was about seven of us there by then. And so five of them got on the one side of the car where the driver was there, still strapped in the car. And they lifted the car up. And then me and this other fellow tried to get the guy out, but we couldn't get him out. Because he, he was hanging from his seatbelt when we, when we lifted the car. Then he started hanging from his seatbelt. So we're trying to reach in and undo the seatbelt. We couldn't get the, uh, the seatbelt undone because he was hanging there unconscious uh, from the seatbelt. And um, it took us about five minutes of crawling around under a car being held up with five guys uh, to get this guy unclasped from his seatbelt and drag him out of the car. And by then the ambulances came and were able to take him off to the hospital. And uh, I, was, I had no idea whether the guy was alive or dead. People said he had a pulse, but he was unconscious and out. And uh, I found out later that we probably saved his life that day. He, uh, he made it through <laughs> a few surgeries, had some broken bones, but apparently there was no permanent damage to him. He was very lucky. And, you know, it felt kind of good. It, it was pretty traumatic, and I had no questions that I was going to, I'm going to participate in this. And, uh, but you know, I've often thought, boy, I, I want to be a hero. <laughs> you know? Do you want, have, have, how many of you have wanted to be a hero? Just, I wish someone would be in a life threatening situation so I could go rescue. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's a few of us. Yeah, that's sort of our weird, it's, it's a little bit morbid, isn't it? It's kind of like sad. But yeah, I, I, I kind of relate to that and I, I like that idea. But, uh, but you know what? Every time you have one of these situations, you have to decide what you're going to do. You know, for this guy saving us out in the boat, I mean, he had to decide to use a lot of gas. Maybe he was going to go fishing, trolling, or, or sightseeing on the lake with his boat, but he, he had to give that up. For me, I had to give up safety to go crawl underneath this car with five guys holding it up to try to get this guy's seatbelt off. No easy task. And a lot of people would just go, you know what, wait for the tow truck. Wait for someone else, wait for the professionals to show up. They know what to do, they know how to do this. Um, and a lot of people would recommend that. Um, but what do you do when you see someone in a terrible situation, stranded or difficult? I remember years ago when, uh, when our, our we, Kendall was just a little toddler, like three or four years old, and our car broke down on the 417, about 10 miles out of town, on the side of the road, and it was minus 25 out, 
and at night, and Jennifer gets out of the car and walks down the freeway. She was pretty happy when someone came and stopped, picked her up. But I hear these days that you put your life in danger when that happens. If you stop for someone with a little kid on the side of the road, these days people are using women and child on the side of the road as bait to get people to stop so they can be mugged and their car stolen. Crazy. But would that stop you from doing it? We're all, there's always a, a consequence. There's always a concern. There's always, well, a payoff. Do I really need to do this? Should I really do this? We're often busy. You know, people have all kinds of problems. And do we stop and help? Do we show compassion? Do we care about the people around us? Do you stop for the, the lady with the flat tire? Do you stop with the, for the person who's struggling with something? I, I saw a kid the other day, uh, obviously had mental issues, and he was running across an intersection. I stop, I get out of the car, and I, I see a woman trying to corral him and ran over to help. Someone, what do we do when people are stuck? Just a month ago, remember when we had that huge snowfall? I'm on, driving on my way home, and I'm passing one stuck car after another. There are three people stuck in my neighborhood. I go home, grab a rope, go back hook them onto their cars, and with my SUV, I was able to pull out three people. <laughs> kind of made their day. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, this is, this is normal for a Christian to care about other people and to do what, what's within their power to help other people. Now, the thing is, after I pulled those three people out, I just went back home. I didn't go driving around the neighborhood looking for other stuck people, which I could have done, Right? So we, we all can do some and we can do more. There's always more to be done. But how much do we do? And I believe when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan, I kind of believe that we need to do what God's put like right in front of us, you know? Like when I was driving home, I knew I had a rope at home. I knew at my, my, my car has four-wheel drive, I had good snow tires on. I knew I could help these people. And it was right in front of me, and I felt a kind of a responsibility to help the people right in front of me. And so it was with the Good Samaritan. You know, I don't think Jesus was telling the story of the Good Samaritan so that we could have AA, or uh, not AA, CAA. Yes. <laughs> Get the right thing. <laughs> Wrong acronym. But yeah, so we couldn't have car clubs to go and help people. It wasn't his point that, we, that they would organize a special Jericho Road team that would, that would walk up and down the highway to make sure that everyone was okay. That wasn't the point. The point that Jesus was saying is when there's a problem right in front of you, it is, in fact, your responsibility to get out of, get out of your routine and go and help the person who needs help. And so this... This morning, we're, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. Uh, we were in, in chapter 11 this morning, so if you'd like to, to turn there. The first half of chapter 11 is really rehashing what we talked about last week, which was this big, huge ch uh, change of thought for the early church. From the direction they were going was only preaching to the Jews, and, uh, they had, and God somehow had to throw in a bunch of miracles to get this ship to turn around so that the church would start ministering to the Gentiles. And the, the turnaround started to happen 
Uh, and then the, the, the end of the first half of chapter 11 of Acts, we read this. Paul is saying, uh, as I began to speak, so he's, he's, he's reiterating basically what happened is he got back to Jerusalem. And some of the people there, after, after he preached to Cornelius, and Cornelius the Gentile was, was saved, and his family, was, they were all saved. He gets back to Jerusalem, and, and people are like, you did what? You went into a Gentile's house and shared Christ with him? Are you crazy? What are you talking? Why did you do that? You ate with Gentiles? That's strictly forbidden. What are you doing, Peter? And they, they were really upset. And Peter went and they explained how he, uh, the whole thing with the sheet coming down from heaven, and he, he, he explained how the angel talked to Cornelius, and, the, and that he had been called to Cornelius' house, and then he explained how uh, while he was preaching the gospel in Cornelius' house, that the Holy Spirit came down on them. This is what he said. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. And then he said this, So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could stand in the way of God? And so when these skeptical Jews heard this, this is what they said. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And can we get this up on the, on the screen? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance, which, which leads to life. Oh, do we not have it? I didn't make the slide. Huh. Okay. <laughs> My fault. Sorry. <laughs> Thought I had it. But what, what I want to point out is it's interesting that, that they respond with, huh, look at that. So even the Gentiles? You know, you can tell that they're, they're not quite done with their, you know, their uh, prejudice against the Gentiles. You know, even the Gentiles can be saved? Huh. What amazing things. You know, it's kind of interesting. And so we pick up the story at that point. This whole dramatic scene of, of changing this, the ship of the church to go and start looking at the Gentiles. And that's where we picked up the story in verse 19. And so I'd like us to pray and just add, ask God to guide us through this passage of Scripture as we look at it. Father, this is the word, your word powerful and effective, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we ask that today you would use your word to cut through our hearts and cause us to change. Lord, I pray that this church would change. Lord, I pray that we, as like a ship moving in a particular direction, Lord, that we as a church would change our direction. Lord, because... I know you're leading us to a new place. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would speak to your people and cause them to be changed and move to this new place. Lord, I pray that your anointing would be on me as I speak your word, Lord. May it be holy and fresh and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start in verse 19. Uh, do I have this slide? Oh, look at that, I do. Uh, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So basically there was this persecution in the, the uh, seventh chapter 
of the book of Acts, we have Stephen being killed. And remember Paul or Saul chasing the Christians. So uh, right over here, you have Jerusalem. And it says that they went up to Phoenicia and to, and to Cyprus, which is over here, and to Antioch. So they're running away. Now, remember, Paul was chasing them to Damascus, which is right here uh, in Phoenicia. And so uh, the church is running away, and the persecutors are running after them and persecuting them as they go. And the interesting thing is that they actually get on boats and head over to Cyprus. Now, you know, it might not look very far from Phoenicia to Cyprus, but it's over 400 miles. You cannot see this huge island of Cyprus from Lebanon. Uh, you can go to the highest mountains in Lebanon and look across the ocean, but the curve of the earth is so much that, that Cyprus is beyond the curvature of the earth. You can't, can, can you see Cyprus? No, you can't. The people, they, they know they've been there. <laughs> you can't see Cyprus too far away. Now, can you imagine getting on a boat? They don't have motors. They don't have anything. And heading across the ocean to get to Cyprus. People were running for their lives. And you know what? It's curious that today people are leaving this area and heading for Cyprus. And heading for Turkey and getting all the way over to here and various places up in here. And a lot of them are risking their lives for the very same journey, for the very same reason. They're running away from persecution. Uh, and then, then, then they made it all the way up to Antioch. Now, it's interesting that people are fleeing to Antioch today. It's not called Antioch anymore. It's called Antakya. And it is right on the border of Syria. It's just inside of Turkey. And people are just flooding there. And in fact, there are twice as many Syrians now living in this Turkish town than Turks. It's just being flooded because people are running away. And so I find it interesting that history repeats itself. There was persecution back in the first century, and it's the Christians that are running away. Now there's persecution, and it's, well, all kinds of people. Everybody who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't agree with ISIS is running away. Anyways. Look at what the next verse says. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news. So just, I had to add Cyrene in here because it, it's, it's actually right here, just off the map. <laughs> so, but these guys are from Cyrene, way over here, and from Cyprus. Now, what were they doing in Antioch? Were they, you think they were chasing the people over there to preach the gospel to them? I don't think so. I think that they were from these parts, but they just happened to be part of the people that were, were in Jerusalem being chased out. And so they were running for their lives as well. And they end up in Antioch. Now, why do they end up in Antioch? Antioch is an amazing city uh, of the, the first century. And, um, but before I get there, I want to just point out something that the Scripture says. Uh, you notice in verse 19 that it says that, that the people went up there were preaching the gospel only to the Jews, right? And then in verse 20, it says, oh, but some of the people in Antioch were preaching to the Gentiles as well. And there's this huge shift taking place. You know, we just had a whole chapter dedicated to going out to the Gentiles, but people, you know, we're, we're a little slow and hard of hearing. And so even though maybe the word of this whole uh, excursion into the Gentile area 
was talked about, people weren't doing it yet wholeheartedly. There was just a small group of people decided, you know what? We're just going to tell everybody about Jesus. We don't care what kind of race or color or where they're from. And so they just started preaching the gospel. And it says a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now this is a stunning observation for a couple of reasons. First is the theological reason, of course. We just talked about this. uh, That up to this point in history, Jews never fellowship with Gentiles. There is no church or, or synagogue or, or a Jewish structure anywhere in the world that was for Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the Gentiles could come to the temple, but they had to stay on the outside. They weren't allowed into the inner part of the temple. And this was just normal and accepted, and everybody knew it. But all of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of people fellowshipping together, Gentiles and Jews alike. A church had never formed across ethnic, racial, or cultural divides ever before. And maybe Luke was wondering about this. But there was also a a second reason for this, this thing to be odd and unusual. And that is, it's a sociological reason, and that is the city of Antioch itself. Antioch was, uh, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had about 500,000 people in it. Huge city. And uh, you have to realize that, that there's never been a city that reached a million people before 1850 A.D. So almost two centuries it took before this time to reach a million. This, this city is a, is a city of a half a million people. And so uh, this is a huge city, but it's a absolutely diverse city. In fact, if you go to the city, what you'll find is all through the city, there was walls built, and and they've done archaeological digs. All through this ancient city, um, it's built on a river, so there's rivers dividing the city, there's walls dividing the city, and there was like uh, five major ethnic groups. They actually kept each other apart with walls. This city might be all in one place, but they are definitely not unified. They were uh, completely segregated from one another. It kind of reminds me of Ottawa, doesn't it? There's the Chinatown over here. There's Little Italy over here. There's the Somalian group over in that neighborhood and in this neighborhood. And we do kind of the same thing. Everybody kind of sticks to themselves. And, and you, you can go to the um, Middle Eastern uh, uh, food place there on... on um, well, various places, actually. And we, we tend to segregate. And this city segregated a lot. But because it was the center of commerce and the center of traffic, you see, there was a road that goes from here all the way to Rome, a major transcontinental highway. And then the other road went all the way to China, way, way over here somewhere. And then there was another road that went all the way down to Egypt through Palestine this area. And so Antioch was a bustling city because of the trade routes that were all around it. And it was full of ethnic diversity. Isn't it interesting that God chooses this city to make a huge statement, a huge mark on the way the church will be from then on? This is the city that became sort of the, the model for Christian churches. It became the biggest church of the early church and the model of how churches should run. And it's in this ethnic diversity that it's birthed. And, And you can see later in chapter 13 when they start sending people out, 
the names of the people that they send out and they pray for and stuff, the names of the leaders in the church, they're from all over the world. They're not Jewish names. They're Greek names, they're Egyptian names, they're, they're all kinds. And so this church started in this cultural diversity. <clears throat> and so you can see why Luke specifically mentions that the gospel is being preached, first of all, to the Jews first, but then in Antioch, it started getting preached to other, other uh, ethnic groups. <clears throat> Yet in Acts 11, Luke is reporting with kind of like a pretty big excitement. He's, he says a number of times that a great number of people came to know the Lord. He's excited that these cultural and racial walls are coming down. And for the first time in history, the world, God has proven himself that he's not a tribal God, but that he is the God of all the earth and all peoples and all nations and all races. And it says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The energy of heaven was let loose when these people started preaching the gospel amongst the, the Gentiles and the Greeks and they started coming to know the Lord. It was the, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that people's sins could be forgiven and they could follow Christ and be united in him and have his blood cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That's what united them. And they came together and the, this church had great power in the early, uh, early churches. Uh, but then we get to the next verse, verse 22. News about this reached the church in Jerusalem. Dun, dun, dun. Uh-oh, I hear someone saying, uh-oh, what are the people back in Jerusalem? They were pretty upset with Peter when he went to the Gentiles. What are they going to do now? What's going to happen? Well, check it out. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They went, oh, great. Let's send our best preacher up there. When something new, something unusual happens in your life, when God is turning a corner and God is moving the ship around to go a different direction, are you one of the people that goes like, oh, come on, this can't be of God? Or do you just go like, oh, yeah, let's send our best guys. Let's do this. And that's what I love about the early church. They were ready to follow the Lord. They were ready to follow the Holy Spirit that had filled them. And they moved and they went and they just went with it. Oh, God's at work? Okay, well, let's send Barnabas. Let's send one of our best preachers up there. And Barnabas goes up there. And it says, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, saw what the grace of God had done. You notice that? He's looking. He's like, whoa, God is at work here. What was he seeing? Was he seeing people speaking in tongues? Was he seeing people raised from the dead? Was he seeing people uh, healed of diseases? No. He was seeing people converted to Christ. Not particularly grandiose on the miracle scheme of things, but particularly powerful. And he saw God's grace was there, reaching out to the lost. And people were getting saved and becoming believers. And it says he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord in their hearts. The response was to pitch in and help where they could. And that's exactly what the early church did. Um, and, and, and 
Barnabas is just pumped. He just sees what the grace of God is doing. He's just like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. And it says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, it doesn't actually say he preached, but I'm pretty sure he did. I'm pretty sure he got right in there and started, and that this result was that there was a huge number of people brought to the Lord. Um, then Barnabas, uh, in verse, verse 25, he's, he's so excited about the work, and, he, and he's, you know, he, people are coming to the Lord by the droves, and what does he do? He leaves. You know why? He's like, I can't do this myself. i got to get some help. So he goes up to Tarshish. Um, next verse. And so here's Antioch. Here's Tarsus. So uh, Barnabas goes up around the little, I don't know, that, that's got to be like hundreds of miles. And uh, he go, gets over there and looks around. He goes there to find, find Saul. He finds him and he says, Saul, well, you won't believe it. The gospel's being preached to the Gentiles over in Antioch. You've got to come and help. And so Saul comes and he helps Barnabas over in Antioch. And, uh, and so I, I want you to, I want to, I have a question for you about this. How did Barnabas convince Saul to go? You know, Saul had, when he was saved, he, he saw a vision of Christ. Um, we all heard last week that there was, there was a vision that Peter had to send, get him ready to go to the, the Gentiles. And we heard last week also that the, an angel came and spoke to uh, Cornelius and convinced him to go and send for Saul to, or Peter to come. And uh, we also know that Paul, later on in his life, receives a, a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come on over here, when he didn't know where to go in ministry. And so what kind of vision or dramatic event did Barnabas use to convince Saul to come? Well, there wasn't any miracle. There wasn't any angels showing up. There wasn't any visions all it was was, we noticed that God is with us. The grace of the Lord is with us, and things are happening, and people are getting converted, and they got all excited. And that was the reason that they convinced him to come and do this ministry. And I believe that uh, we as a church need to be watching for what God is doing. What is God doing in this world? Where is he ministering? And when you see someone starting to get an interest in God and in the things of God, we need to go over there. And see it through. And join God in the work that he's already doing. Already blessing people with these amazing things. And we need to get involved in that kind of things. Look at, the, look at what, there was something supernatural going on as they were preaching the gospel. Look what it says. The Lord's hand was with them in verse 31. And when Barnabas comes, he said, it says he saw the evidence of God's grace. They saw God at work. And what exactly did they see? They basically saw converts. Look what it says. Verse, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. In verse 23 and 4, they saw the grace of what God had done. He was glad, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then again in verse 26, and a great numbers of people were taught. So they basically saw that people were hungry for the word of God. And that's what convinced them that this was the ministry they ought to do. And, you know, Paul doesn't stay in one place very often for very long. Paul's the mover and a shaker, and he likes to keep going. But here he stayed for an entire year. 
in the town of Antioch. <clears throat> so I want to point out here that God was at work, and that was all that the first century believers needed to join God in getting the work done. That's all they needed. And what about you? What do you need? I believe this is very similar to what, what Jesus said, the, the way he operated. If you look in your Bibles to John chapter 5, you find a story about Jesus. Jesus is uh, um, going to this pool where a lot of sick people were, and they, they had this, uh, I don't know whether it was superstitious belief or whether it was real or what, but apparently uh, uh, they thought that an angel would come and stir up the water, and the first person into the water would get healed. And there's this, this paralyzed guy lying there, I'm sorry, blind guy. Was it blind or paralyzed? Oh, my goodness. Paralyzed. Thank you. <laughs> there were blind, lame, and paralyzed people there, but uh, he was paralyzed. Uh, and he had been an invalid for uh, 40, 38 years. And when he saw Jesus, uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had this condition, he asked him, well, do you want to get well? And the man said, well, sure, but nobody's around. When the water's stirred, somebody gets in before me, and uh, I'm just never going to make it. And Jesus says to him, well, get up, pick up your mattress, and walk. And the guy gets up, picks up his mattress, and walks out of there. And uh, it was the Sabbath day, though. And so some of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, they kind of go like, whoa, you can't be walking around with that mattress. And the healed man says, yeah, well, the guy that just healed me, he told me to do it, so I think I'm going to do it. You know? And they're like, well, who healed you? And he says, I, I don't know. I'm just some dude. I, I don't know who he was. You know? And uh, later on, they find out that it was Jesus. And the Pharisees go after Jesus, and they start hounding him, saying, hey, how can you work on the Sabbath day? And Jesus responds with a very interesting statement. He says this. In, in verse 17, John chapter 5, in his defense, Jesus said to him, them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So he, he doesn't actually talk about why he was working on the Sabbath and how right it was to heal on the Sabbath. He just says, well, well God's always working, <laughs> and I'm just following along with what God's doing. And then he clarifies it a, a few verses later. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can, only, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that actually, in fact, he uses the same method that the, the early Christians did. He watched where God was at work. What was God doing? And I don't know what the telltale signs were that this man had faith to believe. But Jesus recognized that somehow God was at work in this man. There was probably lots of paralyzed and sick and blind people laying around the pool that day, but this man was healed. And it was because Jesus was following the direction that he saw his father taking him. And so we always need to be attuned, just like these New, New Testament Christians were, the first century Christians, to what is God doing? What is God directing? What, what is happening in our world today? What is happening in Ottawa today? What's happening in my office? What's happening at my school? What's happening in my family? And we need to be tuned in 
with God so that we know that, oh, God's doing this. I think I'm going to go over there and get involved in that ministry that I can clearly see God is doing. And it behooves us to figure out what God is doing today. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. If you look in verse 26, that it's this city of Antioch where the believers are first called Christians. We still have the name Christians to, to this day. Everybody knows what a Christian is. It's someone who follows Christ. And so this amazing thing happened in this city where God's spirit came in and changed people there uh, for, for the good of the kingdom. And all of heaven's energy was poured into those people as they made this creative change from Jewish only to Gentile church. And the book of Acts kind of crescendos with the city or the church at Antioch. And it lasts for a number of chapters right in the middle of the book. This is the, the Hebrew way of writing, actually. Luke is a Hebrew guy. And normally, like we always, you know, our books always have the climax at the end. But the Hebrew way of writing was to have the climax right in the middle. We don't have enough patience to, you know, get to the climax and then keep reading to the end. But that's the way it was in, in the Hebrew style of writing. You, you kind of climaxed in the middle. And so this church of Antioch really was the climatic a point in the book of Acts. And from here, the gospel just explodes all over the then known world. And it was a key factor in that explosion. <clears throat> God was moving, and the kingdom was growing. So this begs the question for us today. What is God doing today? What is God doing here in this city? What is God doing around this church that we need to be aware of and recognize that the kingdom is happening today? Well, I can't help but see a huge thing that God's doing today. And I want to share that with you today. Uh, Next slide, please. As I mentioned earlier, this area, Phoenicia, capital, Damascus. What's what's Damascus the the capital of today? Syria. And that's where they first fled to. And now people are running away from from the persecution of ISIS. 90% of those people are, are Muslim people. And they are fleeing to guess where? Christian countries. Well, historically Christian countries, I should add, I guess. Um, But that's where they're fleeing. They're leaving their place of of what once was secure in their faith and believing in in, uh, Allah. And they're moving into Christian countries. Now, a lot of people are like, Afraid, They're like, oh, they're bringing uh, Islamic faith here. No, no, there's going to be mosques all over the place. And, and I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like, well, if you're preaching the gospel in, in Syria, you're going to get thrown in jail. But you can preach the gospel all you want to as many Muslims as you want here, and no one's going to throw you in jail. And in fact, when people are uprooted from their homes by what? The Islamic State? Something's going on in their minds. Something's wondering about their faith. And they become open to the gospel. And I believe this is what God is doing. And God is orchestrating a mass migration. 
Paul declared in, in Athens, uh, Paul said, from one man, he, that's God, made every nation of men, that they should inherit the whole earth, and he determined the set times for them and the exact places they should live. Well, guess what? Prime Minister Trudeau, bless his heart, has decided that 25,000 Syrians are going to be able to come to Canada and join us here. What an awesome thing. And I'm like, God is in that. God moved the prime minister's heart to do that. And the cabinet and whatever else. Uh, God was involved in that. Because God has set the exact time. The time is now to bring refugees to the West. And God is involved in that. And guess what the next verse says? Look at the next verse. And next slide. No slide. What? <laughs> okay, you're going to have to look in your Bibles. <laughs> uh, where is the next slide? Oh, I don't have it in my notes either. <laughs> Okay, well, the next slide, it says, uh, so that men, so that in some way men would reach out to find him because he's close to them. Something like, along those lines. I can't quote it exactly. Um, but, uh, no, yeah, you can read it. Oh, yeah, I have my Bible right here. Look at that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So you see that? God did this. God is moving 25,000 people so that they'll reach out to him. Uh, I think maybe we should get involved. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. I think that God is sending us a whole raft of people right here in Ottawa. Hundreds have already come. And they're already here. And we... And, and, and guess what? They're not saying, oh, keep your religion to yourself. You know what they're saying? Well, actually, I could use some help with figuring out these papers. Actually, I could, you know, it would be nice for me to, to, if you could take me over to the, you know, to over to here and over to there. And, and it would be nice if I could learn some English a little better. That's what they're saying. They're looking for help, looking for people to help them assimilate. They don't really care if you're a Christian or Muslim or whatever you are. They're just looking for help. And I see this as a massive opportunity for Eastgate Alliance Church to get involved in what God is doing on a worldwide scale right here in our own city. Um, and you know what? They're coming across. Next slide. They're coming across the ocean in boats like this to try to get away from the horror that they're experiencing in their homeland. And Oftentimes, they get on these boats, and tragedy strikes. And their boats capsize. They just put too many people in them. You see, it, it costs thousands of dollars to get on these boats because the, the people on, uh, who run these boats, when they get to the other side, they get into trouble. They get fined. And so they, they have to cover themselves. So it's very expensive to get on, 
And they just pack as many people as they can on these things. And people are dying all the time. What can drive people to take these kinds of risks? Next slide. Next slide. You know that last year, in 2014, uh, 3, over 3,000 people died in the Mediterranean Sea just trying to get away from persecution. 3,000 people lost their lives. Of the hundreds of thousands of people that are going, 3,000 or approximately 100,000 people tried to do it. 3,000. If you had a 97% chance of making it across something, would you go for it? That's a pretty bad odds, but guess what? They're better than the odds of staying where they are. They're better than what they're experiencing in, in their own homes with machine gun fire and bombs dropping and their freedoms taken away. These people are desperate. Now, most of them come from uh, Africa, but most of the people trying to get away by sea are Syrian. Massive people movement. I want, I want you to check out these two cute little guys. These two little guys uh, from Syria, they, are, they were trying to get to Canada. They had an a, a aunt in, uh, in Canada, and so they sent their, their sponsorship papers to Canada to uh, get approved for uh, immigration to Canada. That approval was denied. And so they got on a boat, these two little guys. And you've probably seen this picture of the youngest little boy. Ellen is his name. It's too late for Ellen. This is what people are going through. What they're facing is real. They are afraid. They are desperate. And they're trying to get here to Canada. Both those boys drowned and their mom. Their dad made it. He's gotten over it, but he, he really blames Canada for the loss of his family. I mean, he hasn't gotten over it. I mean, he's gotten over the absolute anger against Canada that he first held. And so what are we going to do? Next slide, please. There's millions of little kids like this. They deserve our friendship and our love just because they're part of the human race. Not because they're cute, but just because they're part of the human race. They deserve our love. And we cannot be undecided about this. Do you know where Damascus is? Damascus is in the center of Samaria. When Jesus told the story of 
the Good Samaritan. He was talking about the people that were there. They're in present-day Syria. And there was a man on the way to Jericho beaten by robbers and left on the side of the road to die. But guess what, folks? Today, it's the Samaritan that's beaten up and left to die. And we can either be the priest or the Levite and just walk on by. Or we can be the foreign nation that says, you know what? I care about I care about the world. I care about these little kids. I care about people. And I'm going to do something to help. God is doing something in our day that we can never imagine. It blows our mind. And I believe that we need to take this ship. We have a ship. We're in a ship as a church. And we're heading... And we put a lot of effort into children's ministry and youth ministry and preaching on Sunday and small groups and alpha courses and all those things that we do. And I believe God is saying, "Uh, I got another plan for you guys. And it's outside of the walls of your church. It's out there on the streets of Ottawa with these people coming who need your help. They desperately need a friend. They need someone who will sponsor them with money so that they can come. They need someone who will just walk with them. Do you know the trauma that these people have faced? There are so many Syrians that have come to Canada that have post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, they're just messed up. They've seen their friends butchered. They've seen their families shot up. They all have relatives that have died. They all have friends who have suffered some way. They all know someone with a house that's been demolished and all their goods wrecked. They're, in, they're a mess. And God is bringing them to our doorstep. You know, these two messages, that I, the last two messages I preached here, I had no idea why I was preaching them. <laughs> Sometimes I just preach things out of obedience. And the first message was about how discipleship needs to be one-on-one. Just a few people. And the second message was changing the ship around, turning the ship around. And then I realized that God wants us to stop doing church the way we've always been doing it. And he wants us to get out there to the people who need our help and give them a hand. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. And there's many organizations that want to help us to do that very thing. You know, The end of this chapter says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judah. They did this, sending their gifts by the elders, by Barnabas and Saul. Do you know, We have this opportunity to help financially. We have the opportunity to help practically as we can. It's as they could, it says. We're not asking people to do things they can't do. You know, we're not asking you to go over to the Mediterranean and bring your lifeboat and rescue people out of the sea. You know, I found it fascinating that that some of the European countries, including Britain, when asked to spend some more money to send ships over there to help rescue these people coming across the Mediterranean, you know what, you know what the politicians in Britain said? Well, if we do that, well, we'll just encourage them to, 
keep coming. That's kind of sad, isn't it? And they didn't, they didn't send any more money, and they didn't send the Coast Guard over there. Well, I know that we can't send our Coast Guard over to the Mediterranean. I know that you can't go to the Mediterranean. But what you can do is give. I'm so, I was so shocked and, and pleased and encouraged when I found out that in one month, you guys raised half the money we were trying to raise in 18 months for the Syrian refugees. Obviously, there's a heart for the needy people in this congregation. But I believe as a church, God is calling us to the next step, the next level. And uh, I'm going to ask these two guys just come up here a sec. Michelle, I know you don't know this, but come on up for a sec. And, and, and uh, Peter, yeah. Um, these two guys have, have offered to lead a couple ministries at our church. Come on right up. Well, you don't have to come up if you don't want to. But <laughs> Michelle came to me last week, and he said, Bill, I got my friends. They're wanting me to get involved in, in uh, helping refugees to settle in Ottawa. And, uh, but you know what? I, I really kind of feel like I want to do that here amongst my friends here at this church. And I said, well, that's cool. And, uh, and then that same day, someone else who speaks Arabic asked me the same thing and said, I've got these contracts, contacts in the city. And this week, a third person who speaks Arabic asked me the same thing. What are we doing to reach out to these people coming to Ottawa? And um, so Michelle is going to be, uh, when's, when's the meeting? Do you know? Monday, February 8th, we're going to have a, a planning meeting. If you would, at what? At 7, at 7 p.m. So uh, Michelle's going to be there. He's going to be leading. I imagine you're going to do a little homework before then. Yeah. So he, he didn't know he was going to share. And he, I'm not going to ask you to share because I didn't prep him. He's only eye candy. Eh? A handsome guy. Eh? <laughs> now he's turning red. <laughs> And, uh, but I just want you to know who it is that you can go to and find out more. And I, I'd like to actually, the ushers, if you could pass out the little slips of paper that I have planned. And I'm sorry I didn't bring pens or pencils. But I would like to know whether you want to get involved. I want to I know if you just want some more information on how can I get involved. And uh, Michelle's going to help you out with that. And then Peter's just going to share real briefly. He does know he was going to get asked up here about... Uh, the, uh, the sponsorship of a refugee family that, that our church is involved with. So I do want to talk about that, but I also want to comment on how these two things interrelate just really briefly. I, I was thinking about Bill's analogy of the ship and as he was talking, and I realized, well, I'm part of the crew. I don't own the ship, and none of us does. Sometimes we think like we do. We own Canada. We own ourselves. We own our lives. We don't get to decide what God does with his ship. Right? So when he decides he wants to change something or add something, it's kind of his business. And that's what's happening here, I think. So a few months ago, I sensed the stirring of the Spirit to say, what can we do to sponsor a refugee family? But at the time, I knew there was more that was going to happen. I didn't really have a full picture of what it was. I just felt like it was bigger than I could see. So this is part of the bigger. 
So I think what we're talking about is two parallel things that are related to each other. One thing is we're sponsoring one family. The other thing is there's a group of people that want to help integrate refugees into Ottawa. And I think those two things are sort of parallel tracks that belong together, but they're not the same thing. That's why there's two meetings, not one. So if you are involved with the refugee sponsorship, it's going really well. Our, uh, the, the application has gone in, I believe, to Citizenship Immigration Canada. We don't actually send it. It gets sent from the Alliance, but they've approved our documents. So that's wonderful news. So our next step is basically we're beginning to prepare ourselves to welcome these people because we've done all the administrative work, but we don't really know what it's like to walk with a refugee family. Right? There's a lot of learning. So our next step is to spend some time actually sort of training ourselves. There's lots of resources available to be good hosts to a family that comes. And the other group is going to be, I guess, a broader reach in some ways. How can this church... I think this church is well-positioned, really. It's wonderful to serve the process of bringing refugees into Canada and helping them to integrate. Thanks, Peter. So, um, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Oh, you want to say something? There you go. Just a quick thing. I just want to share with you something. After I spoke to Pastor Bill about my kind of... Somebody was setting me up, basically, to to work with these refugees, which I liked it. So uh, I came to Pastor Bill. I spoke about it with him because I really felt heavy-hearted about it that we need to do something and I cannot do anything by myself and uh, that was and then that was on Sunday morning Sunday afternoon I went to the reception house to pick up those families and none of them were there and I'm like and I kind of realized what's going on with the I'm not going to go into details here but there is some culture effect that they kind of don't want to be there at that time so anyway I came kind of empty-handed with the family that I took care of the, the day before. And I was bringing this to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I woke up. I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights thinking about it. And, and one night I woke up, and I was like talking to the Lord about it. And I just felt I've, I don't really feel this, this much in, my, in the ministry often sometimes. But when you feel the call to do something. It's more than necessity of, or, or because you have this role, you kind of do it. There was more of a call, and I came to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I really, this is, I feel this call is way bigger than me, way bigger than I can, I can do, and I need your help. And, uh, and I was really encouraged because the Lord was kind of putting us together, and I'm, transmitting that call to you to be part of this message to be part of this ministry to minister to them it's not going to be easy and i I assure you this but it will be rewarding just to glorify him and to serve him so i hope you can make it and i just want to share with you what's going on later on and hopefully we can uh, join hands with maybe other churches as well Mm -hmm. and then we can do something bigger for a bigger god and big god one more sentence, sorry. There's a, we have friends that love Ottawa. It's a city-reaching network that have been thinking about how, we, how they can help the whole church to respond to this crisis. So I think we can really work together with some others. Amen. Thanks, guys. Um, so it's exciting. It's going to be difficult. But you know what? It's kind of like a call, like all hands on deck. And so, you know, if there's 200 people at these meetings, we will have work for all of them to do. So 
I don't know how many people will come. There's a meeting uh, basically on Monday for the citywide effort and on Tuesday for our church's refugee sponsorship program. And so you can, you can get involved in both. You can get involved in one. You don't have to come to the meeting. That's why I sent out the pieces of paper. If you just want information to be sent via email or phone, um, then we'll, we'll get that out to you. And um, so we just, I just feel, I felt the same thing as what Michelle was, was explaining. I just felt suddenly this big urge, like, we got to do something. We have to get involved and not just, oh, we're going to send some money or we're going to get this one family, but something bigger. And so I just have that real sense in my heart that God is calling us because he's put this opportunity right on our doorstep. And so um, check off the boxes. Like basically, they're, they're, they're two different things. They're both related. Um, you can come to both or, or, or all, whatever you like. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. But I'd like to pray in closing for all of this. Uh, you might have noticed I didn't do the pastoral prayer earlier. I want to just do that now. And so let's bow in prayer and just pray for our world in crisis. Father, we come before you today and we are aware that there are crises going on in our world all over the place. And Lord, even right in our own midst, there are people having crisis. And I think of Sue Laws and uh, um, Alan Adams and Panatuk. Um, uh, Lord, these people are in crisis of health. And so, Lord, we bring them to you and we ask, Lord, that you would be their protector, their health, their strength. Their, Lord, that you would be close to them, encouraging them. Lord, we pray for uh, those people in our congregation whose marriages are in crisis. And Lord, we, we bring them to you. We lift them up to you. We ask, Lord, that you would be their their strength and stay, that you would be their rock, their foundation. And Lord, that you would bring about restoration of love and, and intimacy and, and care and uh, in these marriages. Lord, we pray for the marriage course starting tomorrow. Lord, we just pray that your anointing would be on uh, the leaders and the whole team. May they come together in love, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would um, be with uh, the ministry that we have sent to Egypt, Lord. Um, Lord, we just pray that your blessing would be on, on Adele and Hanan and, and, uh, and their daughter. Lord, we just pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, and, and uh, Lord, may they be wise as they use the funds that you have entrusted with them to bring about a, a lift out of poverty in Egypt. And Lord, we pray for Syria. Lord, we pray for the hundreds of thousands of people trying to get away from all the carnage, from the persecution. Lord, we ask that you would be guiding them to yourself. Lord, we ask that, Lord Jesus, that you would be powerful in our world during these days. And Lord, I pray that you would call your church to rise up to this new thing that you're doing. Lord, that we would help those people from Syria effectively. Lord, we pray for this initiative that we've just started, Lord. We just ask that you would raise up the congregation to pitch in and everyone doing a part. And Lord, I pray for the leaders. Lord, I pray that more leaders would come, more people would want to give leadership and training and teaching. Lord, we just ask that we would be your hands and feet today. 
for the needy of our world. Lord, we pray for peace in our world. Lord, the refugee crisis isn't just in, in Syria, but it's all over Africa. And Lord, we just ask that you would bring about a peace to our world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.